Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I'm kind of so excited about this one. I've had to try to re-record this opener about 15 times. Uh, Hugh Miller, uh, the editor for a long, long time of Cross Country Magazine, now does a lot of their testing. Uh, amazing British pilot. This show is going to knock your socks off. Um, before we get into that, though, as always, a few little things of housekeeping. Um, I've been working with uh, my editor, Miles Con- Connolly, on this, uh, on these last few shows. I hope you've seen the uh, radical upgrade in quality. Um, and I just wanted to really just thank all of you for donating to the show. Uh, when I took this on a couple years ago, we're now at 33, episode 33, um, you know, I just kind of took it on as a lark, and it's actually become a real uh, undertaking. It takes an amazing amount of time to do this, which I love, and Miles loves. We're learning so much. I hope you're learning so much. Um, but it does take a lot of time, and I really just appreciate your donations. Those of you who have uh, give, given some money to the show, thank you. As always, all we ask for is a buck a show, and excitingly, uh, we've got a new thing up right now on Patreon. Uh, you can find that link on the cloudbasedmayhem.com. So rather than going through PayPal and doing uh, a donation every once in a while, kind of whenever it hits you, um, you can now support us on Patreon where it's basically every episode. You cap it. You decide how much, um, like always. All we ask for is a buck show, but if you want to give more, uh, you can do so. And for that, there are all kinds of rewards. So check that out. Go to cloudbasedmayhem.com. Check out that Patreon link. Uh, And as a little bonus, I've got uh, about three minutes of clips from North of Known that very, very few people have seen. Only those folks that were up in Banff, actually. Um, some fantastic footage there with me talking about what Patreon is all about. So if, you're, if you've been dying to see a little bit of uh, North Unknown, you can go there to check it out. And one thing that Miles just reminded me of that I wanted to remind you of is that what, to me, I think is so cool about this podcast, about kind of dispersing all this knowledge, is the access to really the best people in the world. You know, you can't do this. There's no such thing as a surfing podcast where they're talking to Kelly Slater, at least not that I know of. Um, But in our sport, it's so small and so such an incredible community um, that, you know, the best of the best, you know, I go, when I go down through the list, some of the people we've had on the show, you know, Will Gadd and Aaron Duragati and Josh Cohn and Nick Grease and Nate Scales and just, you know, my mentors. Um, just so much, so many good talks there that is been compiled from literally lifetimes and lifetimes of flying. So, um, and if you can't, if you, anyway, enjoy that. But also if you can't, you know, contribute to the show, totally understand it's free for a reason. And that's because I want to spread this knowledge. And so do all these guests. We want to get it out there. We want to get people psyched about learning and getting better and, and, uh, being safer and making smart decisions. That's what this is all about. So, I think there are still thousands and thousands and thousands of people that don't know about the show. So the next time you're on launch, if you've gotten something out of one of these, um, tell your friends, uh, post it on Facebook, share it, uh, share the love. And that's another way that we get it out there. You can also just give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or TuneIn, however you get the podcast. Those ratings, you'd be surprised they go a long way into supporting us. So don't feel bad if you can't give us money, totally understood, but just share it. Hugh Miller, this this podcast, when I was doing it, I have to say that I was so kind of focused on 
asking the right questions. I, I wasn't listening as well. And when I went back through and listened to it again uh, for the second, third, fourth time uh, working with Miles, um, this this is seriously incredible. He has so many good things to say. Um, his kind of background and expertise is about psychology. So we talk about just the psychology of flying and then, you know, flatland tactics and league and X contest and the importance of preparation. And, uh, you know, one of the most valuable things is learning when not to fly. And there is just I, I've got lists, three pages of lists here of, of, of some of the things that Hugh talks about, you know, when to move up on wings and the difference between two liners and three liners. And there's just, you're going to, I promise you're going to be blown away with this one. Sit back, relax, uh, enjoy, listen, and then listen again and share it with your friends. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy this uh, incredible conversation with one of the legends in our sport, one of the guys who has really driven forward progress in this sport and has been such an icon for us all and a mentor. Uh, please enjoy this talk with Hugh Miller. I was out of your league. Miller, it's uh, awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I'm looking at your little Skype picture here. You're sending it out over these beautiful UK green flatlands. That is not the kind of territory we have around my house, especially not right now. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for thanks for coming on the show and uh, thanks for sharing some some stories and, and knowledge with us. Pleasure. And uh, I often joke with my friend Jim, we, we, we listen to your podcast and you talk about sending it and uh, carving epic lines. and, and all. So I'm going to try and, yeah, we often joke about that in our flying in the UK. You know, we, 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 we sent it, at, you know, half a metre climb out of a, out of a hill and, uh, you know, we went on this epic backcountry adventure on a new line. We're at least three miles from the nearest pub, you know, all the way through it. So... Yeah, our style of flying in the UK is a little bit different from yours, Gavin. Uh, I'm sure to underwhelm over the course of the next hour, but yeah, bear with me. No, I don't. I don't think so at all. And in fact, just this morning, uh, I got a little Facebook message from from somebody on there. I'm, I apologize for forgetting the name, but uh, in, inviting me over for the North South Cup, which is something oh, yes. I would love to partake in. You, you guys always talk yeah. so fondly of that, and I just think it'd be terrific. I'm not much of a. I have to admit. I'm not much of a flatlands pilot. I've I've done some uh, in you know in Chelan and down in Australia a couple of years ago when I was training for the X Alps, which is strange to be training in the flatlands for the X Alps. But I've wanted some hours. You know, we we don't fly around here much in the winter, so yeah, I, I'd be quite keen on that. Maybe bring the movie, the Alaska movie, over with me and and show it to some of you folks. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I think you have, a, you have a sim- you have a similar thing, don't you? You all get together and try and fly. The wherever it's good in the the western states over t- two or three week period is that right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, the yeah. the inner mountain wide open is what Nate calls it. Nate organized it. In fact, uh, you know he used to run kind of a league event here way back in the day, way much before a lot longer before or much before I became a pilot. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's he got that together. I think this was our second one this year, and uh, it's been really terrific. It's it's right after the X. Alps, or it was last year anyway, and uh, and we just kind of have a two and a half week, three week period where you kind of pick your days and uh, and organize your own retrieve and 
but it's a really good way to get, you know, that that's the problem we have around here is we just don't get that many people and it's a long drive and it's a long way from other launches. And, and, uh, so it kind of collects the whole Northwest crew and, uh, it's a, it's a good time. Well, you, you'll probably have done just enough training for the North South Cup, then. I, you know, if you if you cut the hills down by about ten percent, throw in a few more grey skies, um, replace beer with tea, uh, swap the gris, grizzly bears for sheep, and you'll be okay. I think I think you'll manage. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it all except the tea. We'll look after you. All right, Why excellent. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, I like beer. <laughs> Hey, uh, Hugh, for those who are very familiar with the magazine, I think, you know, they, they know a lot about your history, but those who maybe aren't or those who haven't been around very long, like me, can you share with us a little bit of your history and your clear passion for the sport? And I was just doing some, some research on you before we got on here and you were back in the British championships and the world air games back in 98, which I don't even know what that is. So let's, let's take, <laughs> take us back a little while and, and um, uh, catch me up to speed. I, I started flying when I was 15 um and it was the cheapest way of flying really so uh yeah i got into it just because it was 20 30 pounds a day to train back then um in 1992 and i started flying with my dad at an airfield in essex which is the flatlands northeast of london and we were getting towed up on basically parachutes behind land rovers uh, with really thick ropes and then released from the land rover 800 feet and then get taught how to do a, a full stall and spin without a reserve <laughs> and land. I think this is a bit exciting. So that's how I started. I started competing in 94, 95-ish, I think. And those were sort of, I mean, the mid-90s were a really fantastic time to be into competitions because... You know, a lot of pilots were quite well sponsored. I got onto the Nova team. So, yeah, when I was like 20, I remember like I was at Sheffield University uh, and uh, I would I got paid to fly to Australia and do a World Cup. And if you did well, you got prize money as well. I mean, it's just amazing to think back on it. You know, you didn't just get free wings. You got really well looked after. So, yeah, I competed for three or four years and then basically saw lots of friends fall out of the sky and thought, mm, not sure about this. And I got ended up getting a job with Cross Country. And so I could sort of afford to fund my flying through working for the magazine. And so backed away from the competitions a bit. And that was 99. And then since then, really, I've, I've been into XC flying here in the UK and a little bit abroad. But yeah, still really passionate about XC flying and trying to, you know, go a long way and in, enjoy each day. Yeah. So I guess that's where I am. And, I've, and I still review wings for the magazine occasionally really enjoy that I've reviewed the the king and the ion four uh most recently so i try and stay current on i try and try and sort of concentrate on the d's and the high end c's um it's quite quite a hard job to keep across all the different um sectors of wings and yeah get involved with writing for the magazine when i can too it was your was your background when you took over the magazine back in the 90s was did you have a background in editing and that kind of thing or was it just something you fell into I basically got uh, swooped on by Sherry Tevenow, who was the editor. Uh, I, I was doing journalism at, at college, and I li mm. literally just put the pen down on on uh, my last essay at college, and Sherry Tevenow rang me up and went, oh, you get out to France. And she she sort of um, sucked me in, and I was working for her. Then she quickly made me the editor, and I was 21 at the time. And then this, yeah, she, her, her personal life was kind of slightly in crisis. Her marriage was breaking down, and she thought, okay, that's it. I'm putting the plug on the magazine. And I was like, wait, I've just taken me on. <laughs> um, 
I'm editing this magazine and it's, you know, it's in this tiny, you know, it's in this world where, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I really, you know, like everyone in this world and, and it's quite a big deal to me to be editing this magazine and you want to pull the plug out. That's not going to look good for me. No. <laughs> so, so I sort of, uh, I rang, rang a friend, Steve Senior, and uh, who had uh, much more business sense than me and he helped, he got involved and uh, helped me keep it going independently. But that was, yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll run it for two or three years and that was 20 years ago and I'm still involved. Tell me about competitions. You you uh, you wrote in your email. You you won the league last year, the UK league. Are, are you also still doing PWCs? Are you uh, are you doing it still international comps, or is it more no. okay? No, no, not at all. No, um, we do the North South Cup because that's kind of it's just it's a way of getting friends together who you don't often see through the year and having a non-competition. So it really doesn't matter what place you come because you're flying for your team. And actually we try and make the scoring slightly ridiculous if we possibly can. So, you know, guy, guy over for the goal field last year and he got extra points for getting lost and missing it. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, I think, I think a lot of pilots do competitions for a few years and then stop. I mean, there are a few who, who continue and, uh, you know, really committed to it. But I think your exposure to risk is pretty high if you're flying at top level competition. And there's a sort of fairly natural attrition rate from that, not necessarily just from you know injury, but just just the the the, the risk to rewards, you know, mm. ratio and uh, and rationalizing that. It, for for pilots who are you know looking to really improve in maybe a you know a shorter rather than a career type of time span, you know one of the things I hear from other pilots all the time is oh do competitions do competitions. But are there are there other ways? Are, are there are there things that you would tell a say a five hundred hour pilot? Um, hey, here's what you need to do for the next year or two to get to really improve your skills, you know, to go from uh, a two hour flight to an eight hour flight. Um, no, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think, you know, flying competitions definitely uh, can rapidly improve your flying. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, it's not, it's not for everyone. There's a really talented local pilot, um, Vincent Tallow, who's just disappeared back to France actually, but he, you know, we thought, yeah, he's, he's going to be a fantastic, he is a fantastic pilot. He's good, good XC pilot thinks for himself. Went, went to competition, wasn't for him. You know, they're just not for everyone. I, I think getting in, you know, getting in with the, the every club's got keen local XC pilots and getting in with them and, and going flying with them is, is, is definitely just, just being, you know, soaking up information and being like a sponge absorbing as much as you can. You know, that's, that's how you learn the competition. There's no reason you can't do that outside of competitions. Yeah. So I just, yeah, be, be a sponge if you can. Mm. What wing do you fly and, and, uh, and why? <laughs> I, Flew the triple seven king last year. I flew it to review it and was really impressed. And um, they kindly lent it to me for three or four months after the after the after the sort of review period had end, ended. I mean, in England, it, you know, flatlands, uh, you can fly a slightly higher aspect ring, ratio wing with more comfort than you can in the mountains. Obviously, yeah, I, I enjoy I enjoy the um, the sort of the extra sniffiness that higher aspect ratio wings can give you flying in, in lighter lifts. And, you know, the, in the last three, four years, the, the leading edges have become so much more solid. It's just transformed the way you can fly in, in windier conditions, going crosswind and, you know, pushing upwind. Is that, tri so, uh, is that 777? I'm not familiar with that wing. Is that a two-liner? Yeah. 
It's no, it's a three-liner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a three-liner. I've got a Zeno as well, which I'm going to fly in Colombia in a couple of weeks, which I'm really looking forward to. I've sort of gone between two and three liners. I had an R12 and flew that, uh, and then I borrowed a friend, friend's R11 quite a lot um, a year ago. But I, I guess just for me, uh, being trying to be in the air for sort of five, six, seven hours and wanting to feel relaxed throughout the whole flight, three liners just you know give that bit more comfort factor. So, yeah. Talk about one of the one of the questions I get a lot of is you know when when should I step up when should I step up to the next wing and I think there's misconceptions about two liners you know for for me myself I feel quite a bit more connected to the wing on a two liner because my hands are are always on the bees uh, or on the badger bars and you know is that I, I just I haven't flown a three liner actually in a long time so I can't say but you know it's it, Talk about when a pilot should move up and because you're bouncing back and forth, maybe say between the Zeno and the 777, between a two-liner and a three-liner, talk about the pluses and minuses. I think, um, yeah, you're right. It's that, that connection to the wing you get you get with a two-liner. Um, and if you've got the aptitude to um, to read the wing and react to it and, you know, be in, be in tune with it, then then, you know, two liners is a good option. But you've also obviously got the, you know, two liners only really work at higher aspects. So you don't get low aspect two liners. And with the height, you can't, you can't cheat high aspects, you know, when high aspect goes wrong, then they're, they're harder to, harder to handle. So that's another consideration. It's, you know, not just about the two versus three liners. Sure. I think, you know, you know, lots of people go on about this pilots move up, up to wings too quickly. Uh, I think if you're looking to move up, a class of wing you've got to think well what's holding me back is it really the wing or is it something i'm doing am i landing after three or four hours you know should i um, can i stay in the air for six or seven hours because if you want to fly a long way you need to be able to stay in the air for six or seven hours if you're not doing that then there's really no reason to move up beyond a high high nb or mm. a or a low c i wouldn't have thought um because you know Perversely, if you move up, then you are inhibiting your ability to stay in the air because you're going to be that much more burnt out by by the you know you're, you've only got so much bandwidth in your brain to deal with what's around you and your wing and everything else. And if if too much of that is being used up in flying your wing, you're not going to have the bandwidth to spot the bird that's climbing to your left or see you know see the cloud developing off to your right. Or so I think you know it's a case of letting the wing do some of the work for you as you progress and get to know the sky and get get used to different conditions. It's a huge, huge apprenticeship learning to fly, and uh, and I don't think you can rush it. I think that's really sound advice. Uh, something that I've probably talked about ad nauseum, and I apologize to our listeners if you've already heard this story, but I've made the argument many times. Uh, when, I, when I had my big flight here, what was that, three years ago from Baldy, it was a huge day, a lot of wind, dealing with some really, you know, it was a massive day where I was fighting to stay under 18,000 quite a few times and getting chased by big weather uh, the day before it actually been my personal best and gotten home at you know, almost four o'clock in the morning and only had a couple hours sleep and it was just you know going home to go to bed and and my buddy matt beachner was you know called me oh it's even better today you got to come back up to launch so i raced back up and it, as you can imagine i was exhausted and i was on the the peak three uh whereas typically I, back then i was i was I would have been flying the Ice Peak 6. You know, a lot of this because I was flying downwind that day and there was a lot of wind. But, yeah, you know, I, I've made the argument many times that I wouldn't have had that flight 
had I been on my ice peak, I think, because I would have been dealing just as, I mean, the ice peak's just a lovely, lovely glider and it doesn't blow up. But, you know, it, just having that extra bit of, uh, because I was tired and because I was probably, a, you know, fraction of a second behind things because uh, of the exhaustion, which I typically tend, for some reason, I tend to fly better when I'm really tired. But I think that really helped that day, you know, just being on a glider that I, I didn't have to manage as much allowed me to go longer, I believe, than I would have had I been on a two-liner. So I think a lot of times it's, it's the wing that fits the day as well, isn't it? Sure, sure. No, definitely. And I had a lovely flight um, just just from our local site to the end of Kent. It's as far as you can fly really along the south coast of England. Um, it's about 120k. So I did that on the Ion 4 in April. And um and you know that's a that's a beginner wing it's a school wing and you know you, you can still you know it's, if i was 10 minutes behind mark watts on his enzo too he was you know flying a nice and slowly for me but it just showed me actually that you know all, all wings these days are, are pretty good and so why not fly something where you, you know you give yourself a bit of thinking space mm. uh, yeah i'm quite sort of interested in psychological aspects of flying uh just because my my day job is uh in in uh, mental health and working with kids and families and so it's a, you know I'm quite interested in the in the crossover about how we make our decisions and the you know the way we develop hunches for what's going to work in flying and and how that can then help us there was a there's like a, this thing called the Iowa gambling task it was at Iowa University and they're interested in the way uh, our bodies can give us hunches and how we can make uh, decisions unconsciously. And so I think if you're flying a safe wing, it can help you with that aspect too. You can you can start to fly a little bit more intuitively if you're not racked with fear. Mm. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Sure. If you're racked with fear. When, you, when you're racked with fear, uh, if your amygdala is really firing, then your brain's, you're not, it's going to be very hard to think. Uh, and, and let alone use your sort of uh, unconscious decision making. I, I like that uh, when I, I talked to Kelly Farina in a previous episode, he we talked a lot about his book, and, and he was a huge proponent for that. That you, you know, your your brain can only handle so much, and if you're if you're thinking about collapses and catching stuff and fear then it's it's kind of like uh tunnel vision isn't it it just it just it, your brain just narrows down narrows down and you start losing all the peripheral stuff that really helps us fly big distance yeah absolutely and uh, did i mention the, the iowa gambling task basically it, it, they got people to draw from four cards on, on a computer and each time you'd lose or you'd win some money depending on which card you drew and it took people up to sort of 30 or 40 goes to start consciously choosing the right cards that got them the right you know got them the most money but they were also hooked up and their sweat glands were being monitored and uh, every time they went towards a bad card then their stress response would be triggered and that was happening after just 10 goes so their body was registering which cards were the right cards to go for long before their conscious brains could 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 work that out so that sort of tells wow. you something about how important the hunches are i do a lot of flying with mark watts and when when we get low i just sit back and just watch where he goes because he's got this un amazing capacity to to fly to the right area and get up and he won't know why he's doing it 
he's been flying for 25 years in the flatlands in England and something about the picture and the way the village, the town's sitting and the river and the hill, it's not a conscious decision, it just feels right and he goes to it and it works. That is, so, I love it. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit weird. Yeah, I was just going to say that I'd love to transition to flatlands because it's 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 one of the questions we get a lot of that I can't answer very well. I'm not a flatlands guy. Uh, yeah, distill some knowledge there. Um, I think the most important thing with the flatlands is obviously you can't, you know, it's much harder to visualize what the air is doing because you haven't got the obvious, you know, slopes and um, cliffs and you see where the sun is, what the valley winds are doing. It's harder to build a picture. Although for flatland pilots like me going to the mountains, I feel pretty lost because I, I do it so irregularly now. Um, so I think the really important thing in flatlands is to start building your picture of what the day is like the moment you wake up. So you're seeing, you know, what's happening with the clouds and the sky when the, when the first cues start to appear, when you're driving to the hill, when when you see your first birds climbing, um, looking at how fast they're going up, um, looking at what's happening to um, to the drift, um, getting on the hill um, nice and early and taking off as soon as you can so you can start getting a feel for the air. And then as the day heats up, Generally, you know, the, the air, will, the, the thermals will punch, punch you through the inversion layers as the day heats up. So you can, if you're in the air, you can get a feel for where they are. And um, later in the day, they may reestablish, so you'll know what sort of heights that uh, you might, you might get stuck at. This is, I mean, clouds as well. If you're looking at clouds, then uh, I think it's as important to look at the clouds and see what. What, where the signs of activity are is just to see a cloud and think that that looks good because especially early in the day clouds can appear and disappear before you can get to them if you imagine you're gliding towards a cloud you're traveling at the speed of a someone on a on a, on a racing bike you know you're doing 30 35 k's an hour 40 k's an hour wow. you're going to have to pedal very quickly to get them before to them before they die later in the day sort of you know one two three o'clock onwards they, they're more established and they're a, they're a surer surer bet so it's just it's just about you know building a picture of the day and also i think treating the sky a bit like a checkerboard a, a lot of pilots early on me 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 uh, me as well we used to, i used to think um, okay head for that uh, factory that's going to work but actually if you think about the the sky and the land divided into like a chessboard or a checkerboard some squares the white squares you know, there's a much better chance of lift of the black squares, which are shaded out or just not in cycle, pretty much guaranteed there won't be lift there. So it's a case of always arriving in the right kind of area and then zeroing in on uh, on, on where the where the thermal might be. Does that make sense? So Absolutely. you're getting into the right kind of square, then it's not working, maybe going left or right a bit, as opposed to plowing, plowing on downwind that that can tend to work right you know rather than just gliding straight downwind get into the right area and then sniff about and um talk about a bit more talk to me about flying lines in the flatlands like the you know one of the things that i've often come up against is you're on this terrific line that's leading you right into a blue hole and i'm often tempted to just well it's this line you know it's just that that part hasn't you know i'm in cycle that should work Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Is this a is this just a hunch thing, or is it, it? Do you just avoid those? Do you have any kind of rules for entering and exiting uh, clouds? 
Cool. Quite, I quite often, um, you'll, you'll get a good line, won't you? You'll be charging along for 20, 30 Ks, and then you'll get to the end of it like, oh, no, because it's just this massive blue hole that, you know, beyond you. And it, it, you've sort of been geared for speed and you've been blasting along. Uh, and then you, you have to stop and think, and you can't just leap into the blue. Uh, quite often, it is worth going off at 30 degrees, 40 degrees, mm. um, one way or the other. And I mean, here in here in England, we're always avoiding airspace, so that can usually help you rather than hinder you. It's quite rare to fly straight downwind. It's sort of late mid mid afternoon onwards. It's definitely worth following the lines of clouds um, earlier in the day, probably as well. But as I say, because they they kind of build and dissipate much quicker, they're less reliable. So yeah, I definitely definitely try and follow follow the lines of activity as much as you can. Um, don't don't pile on into a blue hole. Do you do you guys often get blue days in the UK, or is it or is there, there enough moisture around always that you're getting clouds? Yeah, no, we do. We get we get days when it blues out or it starts blue for, for quite a while until until the lapse rate's good enough for it to to, to pop. I quite enjoy blue days. The World Air Games in Turkey was mainly blue twenty years ago, whenever it was. But flying, you know, inverted days when it's a bit choppy and it's what um kelly calls um sticky days isn't it you know mm, mm. the thermals are sort of gloopy and you really have to kind of hang on to them and try and feel where they are quite enjoy that kind of flying yeah yeah it's good fun you mentioned you're you're heading to columbia which has a lot of flatlands is this your have you been down to columbia a lot is, do you often take no, a never. winter never you're kidding never no no because of my job i work term time so it's quite hard to get away in the winters but mm. um yeah no first time this time have you been oh yeah yeah my first time was the super final there a couple of years ago and uh actually rusted really well there that year and uh yeah no it's terrific you're gonna love it it's just you know you you, you get a an insane amount of hours you know you, you fly every day it's it's really it's really pretty terrific and it's got this nice combination of mountain and flatlands and looking at your picture in the uk you'll you'll uh you'll it'll be very familiar to you you know there's huge sugarcane fields i'm very i'm sure you've heard about the fires you know and kriegel flying into the fire at the super final and all that kind of stuff it's a, yeah no it's a great place you'll love it you'll get a lot of hours and come back with a smile and a sunburn excellent i'm looking forward to it yeah no that'd be good hugh tell me about uh let's switch gears here a little bit because you've been involved in the sport and probably been around a lot of the statistics and stuff with the magazine what do you see happening with flying in terms of numbers you know and and then since this you know and since this kind of shark nose technology and since things changed so radically in 2009 russ had a really good observation about you know safety and why paragliding has remained dangerous uh even as wings have gotten so much safer and better, you know, he was talking about that, you know, back in the nineties, you just wouldn't fly in the winds that we do now because of the wings are, the wings are so much faster. So that's automatically making it, you know, that makes the lead mm. more dangerous and the places we go more dangerous and it's just paragliding. It's dangerous, but can you, I, I realized I've asked you quite a number of questions there, but I'd love to get your take on kind of what you see in the industry. I think uh, you're right. I mean, technology is uh, is playing a much bigger part now than ever before because the wings are so much better. Uh, I think it's quite 
difficult to make a really good wing now because you know like russ said progress has necessarily slowed down you know they're trying to trying to uh build a new wing it is like reinventing the wheel now it's it's quite it's getting quite hard i think um and yet the progress keeps going so you know hats off hats off to the the really good manufacturers and that's great for us you know we're we're, we're very lucky i think to be flying flying now you know I, I took out my old comp wing the nova nexon last year and it was just it was just uh it's just incredible looking at the the progress between that and a an ena wing like this the swing discus so yeah, it used to be a sort of cottage industry, really. You know, forty or fifty manufacturers, uh, you know, in alpine villages, knocking out pretty okay wings. And now it's sort of got more concentrated, with probably fewer really good, really good brands. In terms of the growth of the sport, I I say I think it's fairly. I mean, it seems to be fairly static in the UK. Mm. I think France might have shrunk a little bit. Germany's fairly static. Is it something like 120,000 pilots worldwide still? Mm. Yeah, it seems to be becoming a slightly older sport. You know, we're 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 still flying, but there aren't a huge number of, of younger pilots coming through. So it'd be nice uh, nice for that to change. Having said that, the, you know, in the UK, there's quite a few uh, sons of, of of pilots who've started flying, like you know, Theo Warden um and Laurie Nocta so they're you know they're they're getting into it and making uh the sport a little less decrepit I suppose lowering the average age to about 42. <laughs> so, Darn it I'm just over the we, average. What can we do about that it's like it's great that you guys you know guys are coming in from other other sports you know climbing and um and kite surfing and and sports like that um but, but yeah we do need to we do need to look at making the sport accessible to you know guys in the teenagers and guys in, in university because it's it's an amazing thing to do isn't it you know mm. tell me about your 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 love of it i mean is that is it uh if you had any lulls in your passion for the sport over the years or is it something that's been that's kind of gripped you from the beginning and grip it and rip it the whole way <laughs> yeah. through last year was a lull well i realized that half, half probably not half the pilots voted brexit or trump but that put me <laughs> off the sport a bit <laughs> realize that not everyone was a sort of peace loving forward thinker but there you go um, yeah right no, i mean i think i think i'm lucky because i when i worked exclusively for the magazine that might have dulled my passion a little just because you know you're working in in the industry but now my day job's absolutely nothing to do with flying flying is a real release escape for me and uh yeah i really i appreciate it as much now as ever i think yeah i, I don't know i no, it's been a constant really Mm. Um, flying with my little boy George, who's now is now eleven, but flying cross country with him's pretty pretty amazing. Flying with just flying with friends, flying with Mark Watts, who I fly a lot with in the UK, and flying at the North South Cup, and it's fun having Russ come over to the North South Cup because you just we sort of always talk about the UK and how good it can be, and you, you know, they just laugh at us. He calls paragliding in the UK indoor paragliding because it's so tame, uh, and then. <laughs> And then he's, then he's on a bus. You know, we've hired, we've chartered a uh, a coach, fifty-two seat coach, at seven in the morning, and we're piling all these pilots on. It's like a World Cup task, and we're driving up to Scotland and abandoning everyone, train spotting style, in this car park in the middle of nowhere. You know that scene in Train Spotting where they get out and they yeah. look, look at the scenery and they're like, "What do we do now?" <laughs> it's like, and it's blowing a hoolie. and we say, "Yeah, let's take off. Off you go." It's like this has got disaster written all over it. 
And then seven hours later, we were all scattered all over, you know, the English dales and getting taxis from everywhere back to back to base. And yeah, I mean, you know, those sorts of adventures are just. Uh, I love it. Just... I love it. I love it. Well, it, you know, it, it would be remiss of me. We kind of glossed over something there uh, a while back, and I, I need to return to it. Your your expertise, where you work now at the NIH, NIA, what is it? Uh, sorry, where you work now at the NIH? Is that it? Oh, the uh, NHS. NHS. Okay. National Health Service. You don't have one of those in America. No, no, no. We we we, <laughs> we, we don't have one here for long either. Yeah, we we leave people in the gutter here. We don't. Yeah, we don't like to take. Yeah, no. <laughs> only we drag them, we drag them halfway out and then we kick them back in. <laughs> yeah, only the rich survive, right? Yeah, like, Jesus. Um, good God, you know, we can't go down that road. But I do want to go down the road of psychology with you. Uh, we kind of glossed over it before, and that was that was wrong with me. I want to get back to that. You know, with your with your kind of background and working with kids and psychology and mental health, it's very gliding, Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the things that comes up, of course, again and again, is uh, you know accidents and fear and getting over it and moving on or just leaving it behind. Talk a little bit about that. And you you even said in, in the in the email to me that you've, you've worked with yeah. some people in terms of like, you know, how do you, how do you maintain happiness with flying and, and, uh, should you even try? And, uh, you know, how do you talk people kind of off the edge or, you know, I think we've all had friends that have gotten hurt who are flying scared. And of course with 2020 hindsight, we go, God, I wish I would have, X, you know, I would have, I wish I would have said something or I wish, you know, I, I wish they wouldn't have been flying or, you know, again, I'm asking you too many questions at once, but. Well, the, the, okay. So the, the, I'm not a sports psychologist, but I've, I've chatted to, um, three or four British pilots, uh, in, you know, in competition, uh, to try and help them become more aware of the, uh, the, the way sometimes, uh, they can have thinking traps that kind of get in the way of them doing well uh, a very common you know a very common one in, in competition is is when you're doing well you know you want to push on and kind of show yeah this is you know I'm, I'm doing it here and and then and then you end up alone and out front and bombing out and it does your end result no good at all um, so I've worked with a few pilots around identifying when that gremlin comes up what it looks like what it feels like what the thought is, it's sort of basic CBT, what the thought is, what the feeling is, what happens in your body, and then what you want to do. And then trying to trying to break the cycle, because uh, it can be quite compulsive. I mean, one, one pilot said that he was renowned for um, always, always flying brilliantly well, and he was a British champion that had never been British champion. And he got fed up with it after 15 years, and he said, look, I just want to work, work out what's going on here. And we identified that you know, he didn't want to fly like a dick, but he also wanted to be British champion. And actually, sometimes you need to fly like a dick and hold yourself back and let other people do the mistake in order to be British champion. So it was a case of kind of just just working out that 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 was one of his drivers, that he that was as important to him as as, uh, as being British champion. But actually, it was getting in the way of him becoming uh, becoming, you know, get posting a really, really successful result mm. uh, in terms of safety. I'm yeah, I'm a. I don't know. I, I, I before we chatted, I actually googled um, fear and psychology just to see what people were talking about, and it was, it's quite a sad, quite a sad thing actually. Because I, 
a guy posted on paragliding forum about eight years ago that he'd seen a bad accident and was quite scared and was asking for advice on how to get over it and during that sort of forum chat part of part of it was that you know he said he feels very isolated from his wing and he feels like he's got nothing to do when he's flying at trim and then i sort of kept 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 reading people's advice and stuff scrolled down and then it turns out this guy dies three weeks later having suffered a big collapse oh my uh, god and you know that sent the shivers up my spine because i thought you know and i don't think a few pilots have said you know go on an siv course learn about your wing actually the fear he was feeling at trim in rough air was 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 a, the correct response you know he needed to be more on his flying and, and and flying actively and controlling the pitch of his wing and you know perhaps if he'd been doing that then that would have uh helped him on that day so fear isn't a bad what i'm saying is fear isn't a bad thing it's it's um it's it's a good thing and mm. we need you know quite often we need to listen to it more rather than less mm. yeah no However, it's the thing that keeps us alive isn't it yeah, I mean, however, often fear about irrational things or it can be debilitating. Um, and knowing how we react to fear, whether we, you know, is it fight, flight or freeze? Those are the way with, ways with all mammals are programmed. If we're freezing, then we need to we need to be looking at that and um, and, and working out what we're going to do. Because, you know, if we, if we know that our, our habit is uh, is to react in the wrong, wrong way, then, you know, we, we probably need to address that. Mm. I was just working on my my column for you guys yesterday, and uh, and I was working off one of the things that that Russ was talking about with Kriegel. Uh, so let's switch gears here, although it's very related. You, you've you've covered the X Alps, I believe, since the beginning or two thousand five, and you know, so you've and by by covering it, you know, I saw you and Ed do it last year in 2015. Uh, you're just racing around the Alps and and kind of watching yeah, it all you, go you, down. You it's, guys have got it tough. Oh no, you guys have it we're, tough. We're I tell you, miles in. <laughs> it really. <laughs> my fingers, what? my fingers. And then my weeks, honestly, they're in tatters. <laughs> no, but I mean, but honestly, I, you know, when I saw Ed at the end of that race, he was ragged out. I think he, I think he looked as bad as <laughs> I did. I mean, he and. But he also had this um he had this look on his face. We we got back together at, at Fushional MC, at, you know, a, after the the party in Monaco which I didn't actually make cuz I'd screwed up on our reservation of the RV and had to get it back to to uh Germany, but he had this look on his face of real concern. And I I guess it was it was just like this you know, thank God you're alive. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't know. It was just, it was like a, you know, Ed, just classic big bear hug that made me feel really good. And I was, of course, on this incredible high and had forgotten how dangerous it all was. But you, you've you covered the X-Alps and I've had quite a few X-Alps pilots on, on the show. Um, but I'd love to get your perspective on you know, what separates the top five, the top 10 from the rest of the field? I, I thought Russ's comment about, you know, that, that your, your, you know, your basic or high-end intermediate pilot knows just as much uh, in terms of paragliding and what makes it work and, and flying big lines as Kriegel does. He just executes everything better. So I'd love to get your perspective on because you've covered it so long and you've seen that really change from, you know, what was an adventure race where guys were carrying their pots and pans and you'd wait for 5K for your buddy to catch <laughs> up and, you know, take your time. I mean, talking to Will Gadd about it, it was in the first one who just begged me not to do it. It was a very different race back then. 
yeah, the top five aren't carrying their pots and pans. That's like... <laughs> there we go. We can move that's, on. That's where you're going wrong. <laughs> Damn it! I knew that. I knew there was something. Uh... <laughs> um, well, they're Swiss, aren't they? They're Swiss or they're Austrian? Yeah. Their no, they're backyard. Swiss. They're Swiss. I mean, period. I don't, yeah. I, I don't think you can beat yourself up too much. I mean, they're you know. You, they, they know, they know the terrain. Even before his first X outs, Krieger had gone and done the X outs at a leisurely pace, you mm. know, mm. to get the lay of the land and to work out what worked and what didn't. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, he, he's just he's super prepared, isn't he? And he, he just, I don't know. I, I sort of agree with Russ because uh, it sort of it doesn't let us off the hook, does it? You know, we 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 all know as much as Krieger would more fly as well as him. However. You know, when he's taking off in a sort of 30k an hour southerly wind and he's flying 50k south into the, into Italy, into that wind, and then he describes the way he does it as being like a kind of salmon darting upstream, kind of, you know, hiding behind the rocks. And then, you know, <laughs> you just think, OK, he's actually he's doing a different sport from the rest of us. So, yeah, I mean, you know. There's 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 a lot to there's a lot to the race, isn't there? There's, it's so multifaceted. It's, it's 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 there's so much going on, not just in the in the flying and the tactics, where you land, all the rest of it. Um, and you know he, his sort of cat-like ability to hop from one one peak to another and then just just extend the day by twenty thirty k's over whoever second is is pretty phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, uh, but just I, I I know you know I I know. I know from Ed's perspective as well, it's, it's, um, there's a big buzz around the event and, um, there's a big buzz in the organization as well. You know, there's 50 or 60 people chasing after you all and, and watching it all and, and reporting on it. And there's just stories upon stories you know, that are happening. And there is a sort of level of concern as to what that pressure and, and that buzz does to you guys who are, who are competing because it, you know, it does become your 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 whole world, doesn't it? For mm, totally. Eight, eight nine days, and uh, yeah, I mean, you had you had a pretty glazed look on your face when I saw you hiking <laughs> after the first day, going, "I'm the happiest man in the world. I'm the happy." I was like, "Oh, all right, okay, Gavin, carry on, carry on." But yeah, it's you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty intense experience, and you know, with Captain Sensible's hat on. This is aviation. It's not sport. Should you should you be chucking the two together and you know really making it an adventure race? You know this is flying. You know mm. checks checklists and all the rest of it and all. You know I do, yeah I don't want to go too far down that road. It's um, you know the other side of me thinks it's uh, it's great to have a race that's so free where it's all down. You know the personal responsibility is on the pilot's shoulders and perhaps one reason why people haven't you know been seriously hurt so far is because of that level of responsibility and you know, it's not like a comp where you've got a hundred pilots flying into a stupid area you, you have to assess every decision you make yourself and mm. um, and uh and and take it or not will, will you be uh following it again this year will you be reporting on it no no that's it <laughs> Shoot! Oh no! Who's who's going to look at my glazed face? Well, I'm basically every, every time I was asked this sort of expert comment as the as the whatever of cross country, I just ring Tom Payne and go, Tom, what do you reckon? <laughs> <'Cause> he, 
<laughs> the answers and I didn't. So uh, the truth is, there are others that do a much better job than me. So I think I think Tom's going to be involved. I think Ed will be involved. Um, no, it's hard, just hard for me to get away with uh, with the day job. And I haven't been asked. I've been there. I've been there in a shot. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know. That I, I would. I would guess that you haven't been asked because it, it seems that the uh, you know since the tragedy with Hannes, it, it doesn't seem like they're as on the ball as they typically are. I don't know how involved he was, but it seems like things are. You know, we didn't find out who was who was actually in it until two months later than we did in 2015. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how that all uh, shapes up. Quite a different field this year as well. I was quite surprised. I was just looking. Stefan Huber's not in it, and uh, uh, there's quite a few new faces. But yeah, quite quite different, though. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, I, I think it's a pretty thick lineup. Uh, you know, there's some there's some uh, there's some pretty good names in there. I think it's going to be faster yet again. I, I just got off the phone a couple weeks ago with Hansa. Uh, you know, who did it. Was it five times or at least four? Uh, but he's not doing it this year, and and he was just talking about just how fast it's it's getting. You know, the the, the teams are just so much more professional, and you know, it's all just it's, it moves quick. Yeah, yeah. I remember he, he used to always fly with a picture of his son on his um, flight deck, didn't he? Just to just to keep him a little bit grounded, and you know, he he realized that that there could be that tendency to take risks that were. Were probably not suitable. I remember um, Richard Chambers. No, not Richard Chambers. Richard um, John John Chambers gave some really good advice. Just just basically fly the race that that you would respect and uh, mm. don't take yeah don't take on due risk. Keep give clouds a wide berth and all the rest of it. And yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, well, thank you. I, I was surprised how much fun it was. We, we just, we laughed our way yeah. all the way across the Alps. It was so much fun. And I think you have to, at least for us, that was really important for us that like, Hey, this, this would not be fun if you made a, you know, a decision that ended in injury or death, uh, which is very possible in that race. That that's not the point. And, you know, uh, you, you, anyway, you just have to approach it with laughter and good times and, and uh, be willing to, back off in the right places which yeah like you said can be hard to do when you're racing but you have to i love i love the way kriegel always kind of he's slightly underwhelms with his descriptions he gets, he gets interviewed <laughs> like on the start line and they're like wow kriegel you know you, this is uh it's been two years you've been waiting for this moment you're about to go and he's like yeah i've been training for three months and yeah i'm quite excited <laughs> <laughs> he always gets in. He goes, yeah, it's just nice to be by the sea. <laughs> like he's just, you know, arrived on a bus on holiday. <laughs> if totally. we could get him, like getting getting to the top of the Geisberg and lighting up, lighting up a cigarette and just sitting down, and going, yeah, it's a nice view. You know, I think, I think that would that would do the event. Anyway. I think that I, I think that's part of his psychology. It's it's so easy for him. It's so mellow. It just grinds the rest of us into the ground. <laughs> just looking like, Jesus, are you kidding me? That doesn't even get excited. <laughs> <laughs> this year he's not even bringing a camper van yeah he's just just take it he's, he took a it's like an electric car with a range of hundreds I know. Of he just he just does it because he, he's yeah he, he's like uh he's like the musician uh jack white you know that apparently every time he comes on stage he wants everybody in a different position and all of his instruments move slightly so it just makes him it, it so nothing's just planned out you know he wants it all to be truly a live show because he's that good you know and i, I think i think kriegel's at that level he's just that good that where he could just do it however he wants yeah. speaking of 
developing as pilots. We can't all be Kriegel, but that was one of the topics we, we wanted to talk about. Just development, uh, no matter where you are, what are the things you've seen over the years that works versus a hindrance versus, uh, you know, going the wrong way? For me personally, learning when not to fly, and I think that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because mm. if you really love flying and you're on you're on the hill and you're not feeling, I mean, like at the moment, I'm just recovering from the flu and I wouldn't trust myself um, with a kite, let alone a paraglider, you know, some days you're just not meant to fly and just learning what the right thing is for you is is um is part of growing up as a pilot when i was in kishada um four years ago i was so wasted after the first day because you, you end up you know on a uh a retrieve a totally unsuitable kind of like a little retrieve two-wheel drive retrieve car drive, bouncing around over dirt tracks five in the morning until you get home at seven and then you get two hours sleep and then you tr- sort of stumble up to launch and and I thought, what am I doing? You know, I was trying to walk down to down to takeoff because you, you sort of set up on the top and then walk down the hill a bit. And I could, I, I just couldn't even keep my wing mushroomed up. And I thought, this is just ridiculous. And actually, just going back to the hotel and giving myself a day off, I, I felt really grown up. Mm. <laughs> so I think just you know, learning learning when when to fly and when not to fly is a big one. Obviously, yeah, I don't know. Just um, keeping asking questions, keeping being curious, and just. Being patient with yourself. I think, like, the good, I don't know if this is the same in the States, but in Britain, the, the pilots that tend to do really well are the ones where, and Jockey, Jockey Sanderson said this, he said, you, you can't tell if they've had a good day or a bad day at the end of the, at the, end of the day. You know, they're just quite, um, bit, probably a bit reserved, bit just quiet and don't get too excited about things. And so I think that sort of, laissez-faire mindset can help you deal with the good days and the bad days if you're kicking your helmet across the the fields when you, you land then you know you're not it's probably not great is it and uh the one thing that jumped out at me from interviewing Kriegel was the way he talks about managing his his mindset when he's flying so you know we're all aware that our brains are doing weird and wonderful things as we're flying they're asking us questions about well are these carabiners gonna snap at any minute or you know am i fl- am i am i flying like a complete donkey am i flying like a god you know just it, it, those things going on in our brain can really unsettle our flying and he just in his quite sort of uh, swiss way he has his three modes he has his thermaling mode where he just focuses on thermaling as efficient as he can and when he's doing that and he feels like he's locked into the core he goes into planning looking around him seeing what the clouds are doing uh, and then he goes into gliding and he's gliding as efficiently as possible. And he asks himself when he gets distracted, which mode am I in? And he brings himself back back on track onto one of those modes. So, you know, why not apply that if you're a if you're a, a lower airtime pilot? You know, if you're on if you're on takeoff, I'm like, what am I doing? OK, I'm assessing conditions. Just focus on that and really assess the conditions. Go through your checklist. Treat it methodically. Taking off, just focus on taking off. Don't listen to someone trying to distract you. Um, focus on your pre-flight checks and getting in the air safely. Ridge soaring or you know, uh, hunting for the thermal. Just try and break it down into into those sort of methodical uh, ways of thinking. And that's exactly you know what pilots do when they, they they train to to fly fly planes. So why don't we do it ourselves? You know. I think that's really good advice. My my mind just jumped. 
uh, kind of to meditation on there. I've been trying to do a lot more meditation the last few years, and and uh, I often use this app called Headspace. Oh yeah, and, and he's yeah, he's often going. He's he's a Brit, <laughs> uh, but he's he's often going. You know, if you've wandered off. Just recognize it and come on back, you know, and, uh, and I, I, I really like that in terms of just I, I think we can often underestimate, uh, you know, gliding uh, for sure, you know, that that, oh, I'm on this I'm on this nifty little lifty line and uh, ah, I have something to eat or I'll look around and suddenly you're not really focused in. And I, I like that idea of just coming back to it and and making sure you're you're in one of those three modes like like Kriegel does I, I like that a lot when we, when we were flying on the north south cut me and mark were flying with mark watson flying with kirsty uh, cameron and um russ and me and mark kind of pushed out a bit uh, we were all feeling smug you know here we are we're, we're racing against kirsty and russ and we're out front and we're doing it and then uh Bit, a bit like Andy on Headspace. Russ comes over the radio and goes, Oi, check in your rear view mirror. You've got a shit line. Move to your left. And we like, look back. And Russ is like 2,000 feet above us and off to the left. Like, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, felt a little bit scolded. <laughs> Not necessarily for competitions, but for uh, just flying in general. You mentioned be- before we started recording, organizing yourself. Uh, what do you mean by that? I don't know. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, I, Come up with something quick, quick hurry. Quick, quick, quick. Okay, so in like 2011, um, 2000, yeah, 2012, I think about four years ago, I've been sort of just enjoying my flying, pickling about, blah, blah, blah. And I went up to Scotland um, to fly Glencoe with uh, Jerome Malpoix. He's up with, he's taking pictures and mm. I was going to write a story about it. And um, there was Mike Kavanagh and Barney Woodhead and all these, Mike's, Mike's in charge of those. I mean, he's part of this sort of really good group of keen as mustard northern pilots who they do all the planning and they, you know, they get, they really check the forecasts and they plan out their routes and they enter all their flights in, in the UK league and, I remember that evening that, you know, I was absolutely amazed that they, they were entering the flights and checking for the next day. And I thought, wow, you know, they're taking this really seriously. But I thought, well, how about if I tried a bit of that? Because I'd never really entered a flight in the league before. And, and I thought, OK, so I, I sort of had a bit of I thought, OK, well, why don't I try and fly as well as I possibly can in the UK? That'll be my sort of goal. And I thought, well, how, you know, I'm only really flying for three or four hours. Why don't I keep landing up to three or four hours? And I listened to a podcast with Richard Carter who had uh, broken the UK records, done 250k, and he said, look, you need to be in the air for six hours, you know, so you've got to learn what, what you need to do to do that, is you need uh, an XCP system, plug, XC shot. Um, <laughs> you need food, you need drink, you know, you need to think these things through. And he was dead right. And I think having spent a bit more time preparing, getting a bit dweeby, looking at the forecasts the night before, you know, it's it's lovely. You can sort of start fantasizing about the the flight you're gonna you're gonna take and the set the goal, and it's added a whole level of enjoyment, and uh, it's also uh, made flying a bit more sort of mission focused. And uh, we we yeah we've had some amazing days out um, over the last three or four years, um, getting up at five in the morning and driving, you know, driving driving a couple of hundred miles and trying to fly back home and 
yeah so preparation is 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 really important if you just sit in the back of the car and you let your friends do all the work and you just check your facebook on the, on the drive to the hill and you get out and you go oh here, here i am get your wing out you've you've kind of you're you're already a long way behind the other pilots because you haven't built up a picture of what the day is going to be like and uh so you've got no kind of expectations to check out what what you're finding against um based on based on the on the forecast you've you've had and yeah i think it's really important to to be fully and in, fully involved and uh, i think and that's why uh, why competitions can be so valuable because they throw all that into it don't they that they you know they, they give you a task and a goal for the day and and i have to give a lot of credit to my support one of my supporters in the exiles bruce marks my, my flying went got so much better when he started really geeking out on x contests so you know every spring we would go over to the alps and depending on where we were which was always due to him because he pays a lot of attention to the weather and geeks out on that so we'd end up in some place that was you know good or perfect for flying for that day and he'd have you know all the biggest triangles mapped out that other people had done so it's this incredible resource hats off to those guys uh for putting that together but it's you know it i i have very often recommended to other pilots to not just launch and fly around have a you know have a have a task have a have some ideas for what what you could do if the if the weather is perfect versus you know and then of course things change as they always do when you're in the sky but having option a b c d e and you know make making every flight a training flight you know make it a view it as an opportunity to get better even a sledder and in psychologically as well, if you're if you um, if you're setting your goal twenty k's, fifty k's, whatever it is, and you've got your GPS telling you your distance to that point, then psychologically, I think that's better than just going over the back and seeing how far you can go and being, you know, it gives you gives you something to aim for, which is which is always good. Mm. Hugh, uh, a question I ask a lot of my guests that people tend to like. Uh, if you could rewind the clock uh, to your 50-hour self, so in that first or second year, do you wish you would have gotten advice or did you get advice that you wish you would have heeded? I've been very lucky, Touchwood. I've never had any accidents. I, I've, been, I've had a really privileged life in flying. You know, I, I competed when I wanted to compete. I got through that safely and uh, I'm in, you know, really enjoying my flying still now, 23, 24 years on. Is it really that long? Bloody hell. No, I just take it steady, really, I guess. Um, I was very, very keen to, you know, to do well early on. And, um, but, you know, back when you're 15, 16, 17, you don't really have much fear, do you? Mm. So, yeah, I think I was, I was probably quite lucky to get through without any scrapes. Now, I, I can't really, what would you, what would you say? Yeah, slow. Take it slower. I was I yeah. was uh, incredibly aggressive uh, when I got into it. I guess that's just my personality. And you know, I, I think looking back, I was I was lucky that I surrounded myself with really good mentors and and pilots, guys mm -hmm. like Nate Scales and Nick Grease, and and they seemed to be constantly going, "Hey, man, uh, ratchet it back, ratchet it back." And I think luckily I got through that kind of whatever we want to call it, intermediate syndrome. But I, I probably could have gotten through a little more elegantly, or or just more. I guess appreciated because I knock on wood, I've never had an injury either. Uh, 
well, small little thing on that Rockies traverse where I busted my lip, but you know, not, nothing, nothing dramatic at all. And, uh, I think that could have gone, but I've certainly had some, some call, some, some close calls that were way too close. And so I guess, I guess that would be it. The, just to take your time. It's a, you I know, think- it's a, it's a sport that can be enjoyed for your whole life. There's no rush. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, you're right. Having, having uh, good mentors around you as well. It's quite an individualistic sport, but, um, having, having good people around you, like uh, jockey was jockey Sanderson was, uh, very kind and very, uh, supportive of me when I was, uh, flying in competitions and, uh, just having people who kind of look out for you and are encouraging, but tell you, tell you not to fly a wing that you, you don't feel hundred percent comfortable on. And yeah, just, uh, I think that help, helps temper your kind of, um, desire to, um, to, 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 to take on more than you probably should. Mm. And I always come back to this idea that you're kind of building a model of what's happening all the time. And the best way to do that is to, to, to not be stressed and to be able to just take information in and just process it. And yeah, it's a long game. It's a long game. Mm, that is the long game. Uh, on that very fine note, what I'd love to end us on, if you don't mind, is uh, you may have heard this in some of the shows, but we I do this Proust questionnaire, uh, James Lipton's, and uh, if you're not familiar with it, all the best. You, you don't have to answer these in <laughs> one-word things, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll take you through it. Uh, answer however you like. Uh, what is your favorite word and least favorite word? Favorite word, epic, probably. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Least favorite word. Oh, I don't know. I'm just feeling so full of flu. I'm just looking at the smelly socks. Maybe smelly socks. That's two words. <laughs> God, I don't know. My head is like, it's honestly, it's like it's been full with marshmallows. I've got no idea what I'm talking about. So You know what? That's, uh, it must be, must be going around. There's, there's plenty of people here battling, battling the flu as well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you took epic right out of my, I say epic way too much. I'm really trying to cut that down, but that is a great, oh, I said that it. is a great word. I said word. it before anyone else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you own that one, do you? Okay. <laughs> uh, what turns you on and what turns you off? And that obviously can be sexual, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> uh, my partner. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Excellent. That's a good. That's good. Um, just being just peace of mind. Just mm. feeling relaxed and having peace of mind is uh, is is fantastic, isn't it? And just you know, those those moments can just be a few seconds, or they can last several hours. But uh, yeah, I think we could all do with more peace of mind. Mm. Um, what was the other one? What turns yeah. me off? Yeah. Oh, people who are a bit loud, and yeah, that's <laughs> very English, isn't it? People are a bit loud. Oh God. <laughs> Hey, you're talking to an American. I got nothing on you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, just rudeness, probably. Mm. Mm. Rudeness and abrasiveness. No, it's nothing, nothing wrong with lots of charisma, but yeah, not not too keen on rudeness. Mm. Uh, what sound or noise do you uh, love and not love? Um. 
I like I quite like silence actually. You know when you're in the mountains and it's mm. just everything goes quiet. I, I haven't had that for a while. Um, just it's not so much about the sound; it's your ability to hear them. So sometimes, you know, first thing in the morning, if I just go for a walk around the park and I can stop my mind from and you just hear the birds singing that's lovely you know sounds that i don't love mm. arguments mm. yeah rash voices mm. yeah okay it's all only state of mind sometimes you can handle everything and sometimes you just can't yeah sure of course what is your favorite curse word fuck ah Always, uh, always reliable. And uh, what profession other than your own would well, you yeah, like to? Yeah, oh, having said that, you said that <laughs> the word bastard said properly. Like in the north of England, they say bastard. They say now to say bastard. In the south, we don't. We will say bastard. It's just a, it's it's wrong. It's just it's, <laughs> it's got to be bastard. So I spent I spent a few years and uh, like to think I could pretend I to say bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wrong. I, know, I know I'm a posh English middle-aged twat, but you know we can all, all pretend, can't we? Did John Did John Cleese say it correctly? I'm thinking of the Faulty Towers. Uh, he never said bastard. Actually, he said fuck quite a lot. But yeah, no, I don't think he. Okay. Let's see. What profession other than your your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. Interesting. Um. Quite to be a helicopter pilot. I think that'd be quite fun. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Why something different popped into my head? I'm kind of yeah. I, I I enjoy the job I do, but I can't say it's particularly easy. I'm kind of I've only been doing it a few months in the new role I'm in, and uh, it's definitely challenging at times. So yeah, just to abandon that and go and go and fly a helicopter for a bit would be quite fun. One of the things that uh, I found really incredible up in Alaska when I was doing that the traverse with Dave. Um, the Cineflex heli pilot, you know, we, they, they came in, I think, eight of the days to, to film when, when, you know, can we have something that we thought was going to be big happening, like flying past Denali. Uh, these guys would come out from Homer and the, the heli pilot was just, they had never filmed, uh, they do a lot of Cineflex filming up in Alaska, but they'd never filmed paragliding. And when they started seeing, you know, us using thermals and gliding from one ridgetop to another, that kind of thing, he was just totally blown away. And uh, he got really curious. And so when we'd be hiking up to a launch, he'd often jump out of the heli and come with us and, and was just asking all kinds of questions. And we got to see it, what, what it really means to be a paraglider and then fly something mechanical. When Paul Guschelbauer, you know, he was, he was up there supporting us. He bought a Super Cub uh, this winter from my buddy Ken, who was the, kind of our support pilot uh, up on that trip. Uh, and I always regarded Ken as the best Super Cub pilot in Alaska. I mean, he is the guy that the whole state calls when somebody goes down, which happens a lot, to go get the wreckage and fly it home, you know, wrap it up. You know, like when a bear eats a plane, he's the guy that wraps it up with duct tape and flies it home or whatever. I mean, he's <laughs> super competent. He's been flying Super Cubs and small aircraft forever. And Paul went up, you know, this spring and, you know, very quickly racked up over a couple hundred hours uh, flying the film crew around. And, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity for him, but he came in very green. He'd flown a little bit in Austria, which is just not even relevant to fly in Alaska. And then, you know, he gets this plane and by the end of the season, 
and I don't know how serious Ken was, but Ken was saying that he was better than anybody he'd ever seen uh, flying right. a Super Cub because, you know, the, he and another guy would be flying out two separate airplanes and, 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 you know, Paul would be at 14 grand and the other guy would just be motoring along like they always do right down the middle of the valley at four grand wondering how Paul got up there. <clears throat> and right, right. You know, it was. It's just really amazing that these guys, when they're flying with engines, they're not thinking so much about, you know, updrafts and currents and uh, convergence and all these things yeah. that are so uh, natural to us. And so he he really got good really <laughs> fast. It was pretty pretty incredible. In the first first two or three Red Bull X outs, I, I jumped in with the helicopter. I just said, I really need to report on this from the air. Get me in that helicopter. <laughs> really important to me. Really. You want colour? Get me in the helicopter. Right. Right. <laughs> and maybe, you know, some of the days, Alex Hoffer and Krieg Mara were pushing really hard into like a 40, 50k an hour wind. And the helicopter would be struggling to climb over the peaks. And I was thinking, my God, you know does give you a, a perspective on on the kind of conditions they're flying in yeah yeah when when uh, when not will big helicopters, are they? no no they're not when when, when quite small. no exactly when will gad and i were doing that the, the rocket service the very first day you know we'd, we'd taken off and the, the heli was inbound they, they weren't there yet the filming hel helicopters coming in from vancouver and they arrived just as we got to mount robson which is the highest mountain in the canadian rockies and, and it was just on there was no wind it was cranking, you know, strong thermals, just the most epic, beautiful day. Actually, actually the whole trip, it got worse from there on out. Um, but that, that day, he had just loaded up on fuel, and it was hysterical out climbing and out flying an A-star <laughs> helicopter and a paraglider. He just, he couldn't understand how we were getting up so fast. So we dial up and then come out of the thermal and do acro and come back down to him so he could film us. And then we dial back up and he, he was just slowly circling the mountain, you know, trying to get up to where we were at, you know, 12,000 feet. It wasn't That's... even that high, but it was hysterical. I just thought, well, we're out flying a helicopter. This is awesome. <laughs> That's slightly showing off, though, isn't it? Gary? Well, uh, uh, I mean, don't don't we have to do that sometimes? Yes, exactly. <laughs> look at us. Look what we can we can do. Um, okay, final one here. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> I don't think I've ever. I mean, no, I, I have listened to lots of your podcasts, but I've never got to this question. <laughs> really? Well, okay. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Before you even answer, I'm just gonna say Will Gads was the best. So you've got to beat him. Right. Go. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not into God at the moment. My my brothers are born again Christian. I'm gay. I'm getting married. He's not coming to my marriage. I'm anti God. I'm anti Christians. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's it. Interview over. <laughs> That's a great answer. I love it. I love it. Oh man, you, you and I have, have got together one of these days, and we can talk uh, atheism and Trump and Brexit and have a grand old time. But this is probably not the right forum. <laughs> Oh, Excellent. Hugh, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Uh, uh, good luck with your... When do you, when do you get married? Uh, in May. May the, May the 27th. So that's probably probably be the best uh, best day of the year, but there you go. 
Oh, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll mark that on my calendar. C- congratulations. That is, uh, that's awesome. And I hope to come over and, and join you guys for the North South cup. And if not that, then I, I hope Red Bull will have you back to cover the race. And so you can, you can see my goofy grin at the stop at the top of the iceberg. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch you at cloud base one of these days. Happy new year, buddy. Pleasure. Yeah, you too, Gavin. Nice to chat to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, wow, what a what a great talk. Um, I'm just consistently blown away with the advice and the uh, tactics and some of the stuff, the strategies that we're getting from all these amazing people and mentors and mentors to me and hopefully mentors to you. Uh, as always, all we ask for is buck a show. As I said at the top of the show, there's uh, some new ways to support us. You'll find those links on the cloudbasemayhem.com. Uh, one of the things too that I get a lot of is requests for people to get on the show. I promise that I've got all those lined up. We've got a whole bunch of shows already in the bag uh, behind us and in forward of and forward of us when I go to Europe for the XOPS I'm going to be gone for like six weeks but uh, we're going to keep putting these out every other Wednesday uh, we've got some great people coming down the line so uh, stick with us I hope you enjoyed that and uh, we'll see you on the next episode cheers